When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. One more race to go in 2022. MotoGP's 20 Grand Prix season is coming to a close this weekend at Valencia with a title showdown between Peco Bagnaia and Fabio Quattararo. It will be Ducati versus Yamaha. But the gap is big for leader Bagnaia. He's got a 23-point buffer, making it as good as his championship for Quattararo has to win it. And Banyaya has to be just inside the top 15 with 15th position. Pretty well a given for the Italian. But you only add up the points at one point in the season. And that will be at about 3 o'clock on Sunday afternoon after the Valencian Grand Prix. Simon Patterson, Valentin Harunchi, they join me, Toby Moody, as we look forward to the weekend in Valencia. But a quick thank you once more to Matt Beer for being the super sub whilst I've been away on a couple of rally raids. Gentlemen, much talk has been given to the season finales in 500 and MotoGP in the past, but in my eyes, never like this. And yet, it's really only a glimmer of hope that Quattararo has. If we look back to 2017, Marquez was leading Davizioso by 21 points, but he never had, Davizioso never had this amount of the underdog can do it talk. Is this different, Val? Uh, no, no, not really. No, this is, this is Davizioso 17 again. Maybe with a, with a slightly better rider, with a, I don't know, with a slightly better package, I want to say, but it's a, it's, it's a tough one, really. Um, it, it, is, it is basically just the same thing, I think. Uh, especially because we've seen a propensity from Fabio to push over the limits and crash as he desperately tried to salvage his, his title bid. And I just, you know, as a reminder of 2017 to our listeners, uh, Dovi needed to win in Valencia. Mark Marquez basically needed to non-score. Marquez nearly held up his end of the bargain. He was running ahead of Docioso and I think tucked the front and had to pick himself up and rejoined back in fifth potentially offering a glimmer of oh this is this is possible he might you know he might crash because he's mark and mark just sometimes does things but then a few laps after that dovi i think running third and an increasingly di- distant third uh like uh, shortly after his teammate jorge lorenzo crashed dovi also crashed because it wasn't it wasn't a race for the ducati to win and whatever mark marquez did was never going to change that and there's a real risk that Valencia 2022 is going to be the same. Yeah, I think the the reason that there's a glimmer of hope is maybe because of 2017 and because of how manic that race was and the fact that the you know one of the guys did crash, the other did crash but managed to stay on the motorbike in the way that only Mark Marquez can. Um so I think maybe that that's the reason why there's that glimmer of hope because anything can happen and arguably because 
while he's done a lot this year, an awful lot to shift that reputation that Bagnaya has of someone who who can sort of fumble the ball occasionally. There's still you you'd still say there's more chance of that happening than there is than there was of Mark Marquez doing it because that season you know he, he was strong all year. He he doesn't make that many mistakes in races despite the amount of crashing he does in practice and, and qualifying. So I think maybe it's the combination of those factors that's given a glimmer of hope, but it's it's a big ask. Like, there's no two ways around it. Um, Valencia, a few years ago, you would have said there was a, a an average chance, maybe, because Valencia was a circuit where the Yamaha was super, super fast in the days of, of you know, Jorge Lorenzo's basically untouchable Vic final Yamaha victory in 2016 where just, you know, no one was going to stop him that weekend. But it, it does look like the balance has shifted back towards Ducati in the last few races. Um, and they've been very, very strong at a circuit that traditionally hasn't been that good for them. And yeah, that that really all adds up to make it the very faintest of glimmers for me for Colorado. Maybe all us journalists, we only talk about, oh, well, Valencia could be the wild card because we get there in the dark, we leave in the dark, it's cold and it's just not a normal, sunny, I'm not saying a Mugello 32 degrees sunshine all week. It's just not right for a Grand Prix. It's not European MotoGP weather conditions. It's just not right for a Grand Prix, is it? it, it it's 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 the right place. It's the right country. It's just the wrong time. Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a strange race. And and if you were to look to if you were to look at Fabio's record at Valencia specifically, he was really good on his debut in nineteen. It was on pole, and he ran Mark reasonably close for much of the race. And that was, of course, Mark's legend season. Um, then he was no good there in 20, but Franco Morbidelli was good there in the 19 Yamaha that year. Obviously, just making it extremely obvious that the 19 Yamaha was a really good bike and the Yamaha since have not been as good. And last year, Fabio was just no match for, for the Ducati. So I'm, I'm not sure there's any good reason to believe that suddenly this Yamaha package will stack up better against this Ducati package at Valencia. Uh, Ducati was already one two three in qualifying, one two three in the race there last year. Fabio already had virtually no chance at winning there last year. I don't really like. I don't really see how he wins a straight fight against the Ducatis. And there's like there's four principal Ducatis he has to outfox definitely, who all have a a real good shot at victory. One of them is of course Bagnaia, but then you have Jorge Martin, you have Enea Bastianini, you have Jack Miller, who all of whom you would expect at the sharp end there. Well, more so Martin after Malaysia. I mean, he's yeah. got a he's got a score to settle with himself. Yeah, all four need to falter in some way, which yeah, that's a lot. You're asking for you're asking for a lot. You're asking for like a big, big, big debt to call in from all of them, and that's that's not a thing. And and here's the thing: Bagnaia essentially needs to finish in the points to win the championship, regardless of Quadraro does. And unless you know, say he has a shocker say he falls off, then there will be probably six other Ducatis in the points ahead of him at that point who will be realistically expected to pull over and let him through. And and we haven't had the obvious team orders. You know, we've had lots of talk about team orders, but we haven't had obvious team orders. But, uh, you know, that is maybe the one point in the season where they could realistically be, be brought into play. That is... It is it is the nightmare scenario for for Ducati and MotoGP 
that is the, the I think the worst possible way that this title fight, you know, injuries aside, the worst possible way this title fight could could end is if Carter Iowa was somehow leading, the Ducatis were somehow, you know, in the points, and Banyaya going from 20th after crashing and just watching them one by one pull over to the side of the road to ensure he scores the points he needs to score. Just imagining that, just saying that out loud, it sounds like one of the grossest things you can absolutely imagine. But I think MotoGP is very lucky that it looks distinctly unlikely. I think the situation, if it's raining or it's that 50-50 drizzle at quarter to two, race starts at top of the hour, I wouldn't want to be any of the riders or any of the team managers at that hour. I mean... uh, the only yeah. thing that Yamaha can do is really baby Quattararo through Friday, through Saturday, because we have to remind ourselves he's still got that injured finger. It's still a mess, and it's still, looking back on it, a week and a bit after his Malaysian ride, what a ride he did to get on the podium with a mashed finger that he stuffed into an ice pack immediately in Park Ferme. But come Sunday in Valencia, the if the weather is bad, the only thing that, that works Factory Yamaha can do with Quattararo is do exactly the opposite to what works Factory Ducati do with Banyaya. That's their only punt. I, I don't even know if it'll go as far as Sunday because I think, l- like last weekend, we, we knew on Saturday that Quattararo wasn't going to win, win in Sepang on Saturday afternoon. And I think we'll know again this year. If, you know, if Quattararo qualifies seventh in the grid, then it's game over. That that's just nothing else is going to change that unless unless it goes to something bizarre like a flag to flag or you know but but in normal conditions can't see can't see him coming back from anything less than a front row start a flag to flag which Fabio will not win because that's well not, there is that that's not his forte really I tell you what I hope I hope we listen back to this in a week's time and we are all completely wrong. That'll be just yeah. fantastic. Brilliant. Uh, just coming back to what you said about Davizioso 2017, Val. I seem to remember when he did bin it, he stood up and kind of went, oh, well, I gave yeah. it a go. Shrugged yeah. his shoulders. Oh, well, I knew I wasn't going to win it. I gave it all I got. I ended up in the gravel. Let's all go to the And, and was waiting for Marquez to give him a hug and pit lane when he rolled through at the end of the race. There you go. Which, which again, is... It is the likeliest outcome for Fabio. It is the easiest outcome to imagine. Either him finishing like a heroic third or fourth or crashing out and going, eh, did what I could. What can you do? Um, yeah, just I've, I've gone through the results a bit of the three main classes, actually, because why the hell not? And I, maybe I'm bad at this, so there's every chance I miss something, but you have to go really far back to see somebody overturn a double-digit points lead. In, in the final race. Like I had to go back to 1993 in 125cc, uh, best friends Loris Caparossi and Tetsuya Harada. <laughs> uh, yeah, obviously before the crash, five years before before the famous crash. But yeah, Caparossi went in with a 10-point lead. Harada won the race. Caparossi struggled with the tires, let the, let the championship slip away. And after that, there's just been this really steady and relentless march of riders showing up to season finales with a decent lead and usually just finishing where they need to finish and just you know just doing the the absolute minimum or not the absolute minimum because it's still you know it's still hard work but doing doing what had to be done so you go rowdies in 93 zakata 98 poggiali 2001 tom luthi 2005 
even Mark Marquez, in a sense, 2010, that's all 125cc. Uh, Alex Marquez in 14, kind of, but it, he was under a bit of pressure. Danny Kent, 15. You'd, Simon will remember that, probably. Albert Arena, so that was kind of a hard one in 2020. And more recently in the intermediate class, we've seen Hiroshi Aoyama secure the title over Marco Simoncelli with relative comfort just by finishing seventh. We've seen Bastianini do what needs to be done in 20. And we've seen Remy Gardner basically cruise last year. Didn't Vinales win it last corner at Moto3? Yes, but that was... The, he was trailing by two points coming into uh, the finale. And Louis, Salon was already, Louis Salon was already out of the, out of the picture. So, yeah, it's... Points leads have changed hands in season finales, but when when there's yeah, but when there's this big a, a margin, riders seem to seem to know what they need to do and know what they can get away with. Like there's the, you've not we've not really seen a disaster of yeah. Well, obviously there is one example which is not a double digit points lead, which we'll get to right now. So yeah. <laughs> well, the um, the 2006 finale was eight points with Valentino leading ahead of Nicky Hayden. Uh, Nicky, he made a great start from the second row. Um, oh, I'm tingling already. He, he he just got a perfect start of, of uh, at the end of a season in which he was struggling with his starts because he had a different clutch in that bike compared with the other <laughs> V5 Hondas. And he was he just barged through two people in front of him on the front row of the grid. Down to the first corner, he was second or third at the first corner. Brilliant start. Um, Valentino struggled and of course eventually dropped it at that second corner, the, the difficult corner. Why is it difficult? Well, it's cold in November in Europe. We've touched on that already. Um, it wasn't a good place to be. Interesting reading an article though uh, from Lynn Jarvis the other day and he said, well, maybe Valentino came into that race looking back on it with hindsight that he wasn't on the front foot. He was a bit more relaxed as we look back on it all these years later. Um, it'd be interesting to get inside the mind of Fabio Quattararo. Uh, you know, oh dear, have I got to do it again? Have I got to go out? Am I going to knack my finger up? Why don't I just go and get the surgery done? You know, all these these thoughts ebb into one's minds, I'm sure, as a, as a, as a racer. But back in 2006, Nicky was like, I'm just going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to try, I'm going to fight. I got knocked off at the last race by my teammate. Danny did kind of fist pump him in the garage before they went on the outlap to the grid to say, sorry, mate, I'll help you out. There was a bit of footage and he let him through, but it was a, it was a, it was a, the aggressiveness of Pooch and Pedroza after Estoril was, well, technically I could have won the championship going into Estoril. Yeah, mate, but you had a 47 or something ridiculous point, point gap that you were going to struggle to overturn. Um, don't don't say that size of a point gap is uh, impossible to overturn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll make Fabio sad. Well, it was, yeah, one race to to do a big points turnaround, but two, yeah, and in the same team, and the aggressiveness on that Sunday night in Estoril was not not. It was one of those times, Simon, when the journalists were right. <laughs> um, but you know, in the end, you know, Nicky turned it around. I actually sent him an email i think i printed it out i don't know where it is but it was just like mate just stick in there just stick in there and he wrote back like i'm gonna give it everything i'm gonna give it everything and we all saw the emotion on the cooling down lap best one of the best days i'll ever have at a grand prix circuit 
the two of them on the bounce, they were just incredible places to be. But 2006 was just an eight-point gap between Valentino and uh, and Nicky Hayden. Not what we're talking about with 23 come Sunday. I can see why Lynn Jarvis brought it up as a sort of reference point for Yamaha. Everything is possible. And I, I don't know if you're speaking about Rossi being relaxed or the team being relaxed or just the general impression. Rossi. All right. But uh, it's... I don't think that made the difference just looking back at that race and there's no, it is unimaginable for a similar set of circumstances to finish, uh, to, to happen in Valencia. And let me explain what I mean by that. Bunny, I can crash. R- Rossi, not exactly known for crashes, just revisiting that weekend. I listened to quotes from, from Hayden and he said things like, uh, Valentino, last time I checked, he's not exactly a choke artist or anything. And Brilliant. the truth is, Rossi's just got to go follow me in Valencia. The dude just got to go follow me. So he was Sounds like Nicky. <laughs> maybe piling the pressure on a bit. Maybe just, maybe just honestly saying what he meant because that was a it was a reasonable stance to take. But already at the moment that Valentino Rossi crashed in that race, he was in the position to lose the championship. Doesn't necessarily mean that he was on course to lose it, but in the points as they ran, he was he was losing. The, the eight-point gap was gone. Nicky was second. Rossi was seventh, I think, and staring at Casey Stoner right ahead, and then he needed to clear at least one more Honda, likely. Marco Melandri, probably, of Grissini. Fabio will not have that Yamaha support in Valencia. He will not have riders to make Bastianini's life hard, and there will not be a points-as-they-run situation, almost certainly, where Fabio is on course to be champion. Bagnaia will either crash out or not. That's that's basically it. The good news for Fabio is if Bagnaia crashes, then he'll be, I mean, depending on the crash, obviously, but he will be a lot less likely to make it back into the points than it was the case for Rossi in 2006. It's just a different MotoGP. Yeah, it's tighter. Yeah, it's just, it's just so much tighter. Yeah, it's exactly that. And the, the bikes don't spend the race like failing. You don't have some weird development, Ilmore running at the back of the grid and finishing God. 20 laps down. I've forgotten that. Yeah, so, but it's just, it's such a different world. And again, that support will not be there for Fabio. It's a, honestly, Bagnaia will find himself in the Hayden position. Hayden, after the crash, let Ducati have the one-two, just cruise to where you need to be. It's harder to cruise in modern MotoGP, clearly is, but, but he can. I think he can because he's just, the baseline pace is so good. I actually weirdly think that if there's one weekend where there can be Yamaha support for Quattararo, bizarrely, all season, it, it might actually be this one. Because for the first time all season long, um, Franco Morbidelli is actually kind of getting into a little bit of form. He would have been with Quattararo last weekend if it wasn't for those long lap penalties at the end. And uh, he goes really well at Valencia, which is quite bizarre, actually. Um, it's weird that it's kind of come to this point where this might actually be the one road where he can do anything at all. I'm not sure what anything consists of. I mean, because the the flip side of that is that if there's one person in the world that you wouldn't want to be up against whenever you need teammate support from Franco Morbidelli, it's probably Paco Bagnaia. Because the VR46 Academy thing, like, does the VR46 Academy thing trump mm. Yamaha teammate status? Yeah. Uh, it's a difficult question, but there's an argument that it might. 
Um, so, so it's like the worst possible storm for actually finally, you know, having a teammate that, that could help him. It's not an aggressive question, but ask Jarvis that. But it's it's too hypothetical before, like, before Saturday. Like, because of going by the form of Morbidelli and stuff, of the of from his form, honestly, the only way I can see, and this is really far fetched, but the only way I can see him being a meaningful role where he is between Quartararo and Banyaya is if his weekend sucks. If he sucks, and if the RNF Yamaha suck, then 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 it might matter in case Banyaya falls off and rejoins 18th and needs to clear them for the final point spot, because ultimately, if Morbidelli is really good and he's running sixth. Or something, and even if Fabio is somehow leading, if Morbidelli has any impact on where Barnier is, Barnier is right behind him. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it, it's it's a hypothetical question for if Morbidelli, if Quadraro has to win and Bagnaia has to finish worse than second. Yeah, yeah. Then maybe it's a hypothetical question that that's actually worth asking. But as it is, yeah, I'm I'm not sure what anyone can do apart from. You know, the only person who can help Fabio win the championship now is Peko. I mean, let's let's get the elephant out of the room here. They could knock him off, but they're not going to. Nobody's going to do it. So, oh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, Darren Binder has a reputation. I mean, Morbidelli has been aggressive <laughs> as of late. And he's, you know, can you imagine the war in the press office when that happens? There'll be fisticuffs. <laughs> <laughs> it, it would not be pretty. It would not work. Mm. It would not. It would not be a thing. So yeah. I mean, it, it, it has been a thing in the past, as the FIM MotoGP safety officer Lars Caparossi can uh, can evidence. You know, people have knocked people off aggressively, made aggressive contacts to help ensure titles, and obviously in F one, it, it's also a thing as well. We got two Caparossi Harada callbacks into one episode. How impressive is, is that? Very impressive. Yeah. 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 The the difference with. Hareth 97 for Formula One was that Schumacher went to a tribunal and he got his points removed for the whole season and it was there and then. The difference with Caparossi and Harada, Argentina, Buenos Aires, 98-250, same team. I was there that day. Dennis was on my right-hand side, Dennis Noyes, and he went, it's a racing incident. And I went, if, if Harada wasn't there... Loris would be at the airport by now. He was not going to even going to make the corner. He used him as a bum, and we had one of those. And as a as a broadcaster, you never want this. Very uncomfortable live on air arguments. <laughs> and he was absolutely set over here. I was absolutely set over there, and we still don't agree. By the way, <laughs> twenty something years later, but uh, look it up. Two fifty CC Argentine Grand Prix ninety eight. Caparossi, just Google that. There was no chance at all. Um, Harada got back to the pits, and um, I think he, I think they, all the mechanics had destroyed the place. In the same team that had just won the championship, I mean, it was a complete mess. Didn't Caparossi also have a contract with them for next year that they then tore up as a result of what he did? And he took them to court, sued them for breach of contract, won, and used the winnings to buy a white Ferrari with a, a lumber plate that said Aprilia, just to get back at them. Oh, I didn't know about the Ferrari story, yeah. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, yeah. And then he, then he had the number one plate on a 250 Grissini Honda, red, white, and blue thing. 
and and um, just just to add like a little bit of context to bring this up to date whenever we talk about the uh, the sort of character that uh, Enea Bastianini's manager Carlo Pernat is he was the guy managing Loris Caparossi at this time oh dear yeah <laughs> should should say that when I say knock off I don't mean like deliberately crash into the backup I mean do your typical elbows out, I'm taking the corner and I don't really care where you go type of move that sometimes will send the other person into the runoff, into the gravel, whatever. Which, Franco Morbidelli will never deliberately take yes. out anybody. He's a yeah. gent. Yeah, He's yeah. a great guy. And Yamaha will not be interested in winning anything that God, way. No. Let's, let's just get that out of the way. Like, obviously not. But Franco Morbidelli is an aggressive rider who has... <laughs> Especially of late. Yeah, who's angered quite a few people with, with his antics on track as of late. Yes. The battle for third in the championship is much, much tighter than the battle for the championship. Alicia Spargaro leads Enia Bastianini by just a single point after 212 points have gone to the Aprilia rider so far in 2022. So there's quite a bit up for grabs between those two. It might not mean much in the outside world, hey, third position in the MotoGP Championship, but it will to their bank balances and their managers and their sponsors. So there's quite a battle there. The question is, Bastianini's on the Ducati. They've got the rub of the green at the moment. And it seems that Val Aprilia don't. Yeah, also, uh, I think the question is, will Aprilia run the, the red livery they sometimes do in Valencia? Because if they do, Bastianini might get confused. It's a factory Ducati, can't, can't race it. Oh, very good, Boy, very good. Uh, but then everyone knows the curse of the special livery. Yeah, yeah. Although, you know, Bastianini did really well with the gorgeous special Grishini livery in, was it Misano? Second this place is true, close this one. is true. Um, in any case, I, I only see this going one way, if I'm being honest. Assuming both riders stay on the bike, which is a big if, but assuming both riders stay on the bike, Enea Bastianini has more pace right now. The Ducati of 21 has more pace right now in his hands than Aleix's Aprilia has in his hands. And I just I only see it going one way. I see that third place in, in Bastianini's hands at the end of the at the end, which will eliminate something of a headache because if Bastianini somehow narrowly loses out to Aleish. He can go to Ducati and say, look, I, I took it easy on your boy at several parts this season, sort of. Can I still have the bonus? That's what I would do. So that's, that's what, what Carlo Pernat, Pernat will should do. do, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I see it a little bit more open than you, Val, um, simply because uh, Aprilia seemed to have a very strong internal belief that all the problems of late have been a result of being in flyaway races, of having basically zero data with this new bike that they're on um and that that's kind of you know what's caused all of the the woes that they've suffered in the last few races and valencia is obviously somewhere that they know quite well somewhere that they've tested with this bike um somewhere that's a bit more familiar um so i think it's an important weekend for them because it should hopefully kind of let them know one way or another if they had a, a, a second half of the season slump or if they had a flyaway slump. And you know, in theory, like when you look at track layout, it should suit the Aprilia better if they're, you know, if, if things work. Um, but then it's MotoGP and what bikes it's what track anymore anyway. So, you know, but, but yeah, I think it's a, a little bit more open than you do. 
Yeah, no, I, I see what you mean. And but honestly, even my my take on it is even taking into account that Aprilia probably will not be as bad as it's been as of late. Just and has been and has been good. It's been really good. One other battle is the very embarrassing battle in the constructors championship six constructors in motor gp at the moment ducati run away with that from aprilia in second yamaha they're only five points back so there's a little bit of squabbling to do there but honda at the moment are sixth out of six there is a glimmer of hope that they could get fifth with suzuki in front of them but oh dear um, that kind of comes full circle to the banter that happened between Repsol Honda's Twitter and uh, Grassini's Twitter during the week. You know, one more race to go, and Grassini went, "Are you looking forward to it?" Something like that. Um, mm, bit of banter. What? And what did Honda reply? What are you going to order for Sunday? Did you get? Are you going to get your orders in? And Grassini said, "Yeah, the pizza. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. First place. That is a surprisingly fairly unprompted." Unprompted. I, I I don't know how I feel about that one because it was really mean. It was genuinely really just just mean. It was funny but actively mean. But it is better than the toned down uh, ten steps of PR approval, quote unquote, banter F1 teams do on Twitter. So you know, just a just a note to people who want F1 to be at the level of MotoGP, uh, the other way around, MotoGP to be at the level of F1 in terms of popularity. We all want that, and that will be cool. But a certain level of corporate sanitization, even more so than exists already, will come in. And there will be a lot of a lot of things that just suck. And yeah. It's kind of off topic from the, the Constructors Championship race. But um, MotoGP Twitter has been quite good fun this week, actually. Because uh, Pramac also found a photograph of the Grassini bike wearing uh, sort of half unveiled from the team launch. And decided to post it from their own social media accounts. Saying, hey look, it's Halloween, your bike gets to wear its cape now. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Grassini, without missing a beat, came straight back and were like, we will take whatever publicity you want to give us. Thank you very very much our sponsors appreciate it <laughs> they've, they've they've kind of woken up and uh yeah not been shy of late um Fair play. you you described the battle for last as embarrassing toby um i think it's only embarrassing for one of the two teams that yeah. are fighting for it uh suzuki suzuki uh, this is suzuki's last race they've had a torrid season their star rider has been injured their number their their, their second rider has been wiped out of races um but Honda have no excuse, really, mm. for being... I only meant it one way, and you yeah, know yeah. that. Yeah. I only meant yeah, it yeah. one way. Yeah. But, yeah, it's a mess. I made a real big-time grimace when Simon wound up to describe Alex Rins as the number two rider in Suzuki. I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm going off 2020. I'm going off yeah, 2020. fair enough. Fair enough. Um, um, yeah, Suzuki's another problem, I think, for Fabio, because that bike goes well in Valencia, usually. So... Even if the Ducati somehow all get, again, mass food poisoning en route there, uh, the Suzukis might stop him from winning anyway and make the whole, make the whole point irrelevant. And yeah, it's not, it's not embarrassing. Suzuki's not had a good season, but it's not, it, it would not be embarrassing to finish last. They have two bikes and they've done, you know, they've had an injured rider. They've done what they could with the budget that they have and with the news that they got. Honda, I mean, nothing. Nothing that will happen in Valencia will change the fact that the RC213V is the worst bike on the grid this season. Um, Mark has been doing... Like, um, 
imagine no Mark. Imagine if Mark decided to sit out the rest of 2020. What would the constructor standings look like then? Horrifying, mortifying, awful. Um, I think they will be last. I don't see a win with Suzuki not scoring. But it's just, you know, it's just another kick in a season full of them. Except you you have Mark and you can always just you can always think you have Mark and that'll make it okay in the long term. And and just to go back to Suzuki being bad news for Quadraro, um, if Juan Mir didn't want to win before Alex Rins won in Phillip Island, he sure as hell does now. Yeah. Yeah, quite, quite, quite. Um uh, quick mention because I wasn't here last week, but John McPhee winning that Malaysian Motor 3 race. What was he? 22nd on the grid. Just <laughs> friend of this podcast, friend of this commentary box, as I used to say, uh, all round top bloke. We do have a little bit of bias. There are cards absolutely being shown. But uh, I have absolutely no bias. Okay, I'm then. Stuck all right. It. I'm Mr. Parcel over here. <laughs> but uh, just, just fantastic. Just fantastic. So, uh, yeah. Have you seen him since, Simon? Yes, I have indeed. Um, he's he's kind of finally come down off the buzz. Um, I think the buzz probably lasted a bit less than a normal post-race buzz would by the fact that there's one race left in the championship and he's still got nothing signed for next year. But that'll work out. That'll work out with a bit of luck. That'll work out. Um, other news. Uh, article on the-race.com about the potential of a safety car being brought in in case there are incidents during the race. Um, one thing that was tried in about... 1999. I was reminded of this. 0304. Ah, okay. It was at Grand Prix Zero which was the name that I gave to that pre-season test Catalonia. that would be at Ester- uh, at uh, Barcelona or Jerez, uh, maybe somewhere else we went. I can't remember. I think it was on those two places. Anyway, we were at Barcelona one year, and they, they did a, a, a race. So all the bikes were out on track, and then the BMW would come in and do this and do that. And, do that. and it just didn't quite work out. But that was a lot. That was twenty years ago now. Twenty years ago, I, I had no recollection of that until uh, Stuart Higgs, BSB race director, reminded me of it when I was chatting to him for the article that you're talking about. Um, he said it wasn't. It was designed as a an alternative to flag to flag. It was a something designed for wet races to dry or vice versa. Ah, uh, yeah, you're right. And then they would all come in, and then they'd all go out again. Yeah, I was halfway there, but it it didn't work. It just didn't work, and there was a bit of pushback from the riders. BSB have been using it really successfully for 20 years, Um, and and always the opposition to it that I've picked up in the GP paddock has been, uh, oh, the tyres wouldn't manage it. Uh, And I have to admit, I went and spoke to Mitchell, and I was really surprised when they were like, oh, yeah, give us a year and we can make it happen. Um, that, that actually came as a bit of a shock to me um, without any performance drop as well so you know given some of the things we've seen recently um, yeah maybe something to consider mm. yeah it's a you know it's a it's an effective it's an effective way to work within TV schedules and whatnot the restart is always even the quick restart procedure it's still it's still 15 20 minutes yeah yeah it's just, it's less than ideal and it, it bakes in it creates the incentive not to red flag like even you know outside of the specific criticisms of how the current regime does things, it's just it it makes you more reluctant. 
to stop races. You know, we I don't think we'd mind the field bunched up if they were single file. Starts are a bit dangerous. You wouldn't want too many starts in a in a race, but if if you could have them single file, if you could have them maintain tire temperature, I I don't know as to the exact mechanics. I don't know how far they how fast they would have to go under the safety car to make that really viable. Whether they'd need like a a prep lap at increased pace, I don't know. It's it's but it's it's certainly worth looking into. I would. It it makes sense. The um, let's just throw it out there that the the risk of restarts probably isn't a huge factor in the decision making in a championship that doubles the number of restarts for next season without consulting the riders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And 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 whatever happens with say a safety car during a race or whatever, there's two things to say. A, if there's a danger to an injured rider on the, the side of the track, then you just stop the race. I don't care for TV schedules. Secondly. You need a faster car than an M5. Um, MotoGP bikes go around Silverstone, give or take two minutes. I'll bet you with the best touring car driver in the world behind an M5 CS Super Duper, it's two and a half minutes. It, it's it's you need something a lot quicker. I don't think it's that slow, but maybe like, I'd have to I'd have to look into it. You'd be surprised. You'd the problem surprised. is you can't like you can't get Marco Whitman, the BMW DTM champion, to go do safety car moonlighting for MotoGP. I think that would be a that'd be a tough ask, probably. It, it 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 won't be difficult to find a driver. It 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 needs almost a you know a prototype or something. But another day, another day, another day. Hi, it's Nick from Minnesota. Every time there's a MotoGP wet race, it seems that the consensus says this is too dangerous. Should MotoGP invest in track drawing equipment, or should MotoGP just quit trying to run races in the wet in the first place? Thanks. Thanks, Nick. Uh, interesting question with the the thought of having track drawing equipment a la kind of oval stuff with their jet blowers as long as Montoya doesn't drive into the back of them. Um Specialist comment there. Um, does it seem that wet races are held for longer than the old days? I'll go with yes. Um, I I don't think the problem is necessarily that we're not good at racing in the wet anymore. I think that the problem is more inherently in the calendar. It's the fact that we're going to Southeast Asia at a time of the year where they get extreme rain and extreme weather. Um, and more than anything else, that's the factor. Because when you look at the the races this year that ran successfully in the rain, places like uh, Mategi, where it was a, a sort of a Mategi-esque amount of rain, it wasn't you know particularly unseasonable compared to Buriram or you know some of the Sepang weather that comes in. That's a different story because it's it's just it's it's nothing to do necessarily with the amount of or with the the rain. It's just the sheer volume of it. It's it's that you know, huge dumps that you get. And then that's the seasonal thing. It's because we're going as the seasons are changing and as it's it's sort of borderline monsoons time there. Um, I've also got a theory, though, that it's it's actually something that's got worse in the last few years because of Michelin. Uh, because Michelin might like to make a big deal about how the, the rear tires can pump something like 30 litres a second of water the rear tire can pump out. And... So, so it makes sense that as you displace, but it makes sense that as the wet tires get better and the Michelin wet tires are 
frankly phenomenal when you listen to the writers. It makes sense that they're going to put more water into the air spray behind. Um, and, and more and more, why we're saying races stopped in the rain is because of visibility issues. I don't, I don't think we're in a bad position in terms of wet races or like significantly worse than other motorsport championships. I think we're okay. Um, the biggest, in terms of risk, I mean, yeah, we have race postponements, race delays, but that's that's just part of the modern world. We're a bit more careful with safety now. Ultimately, motorcycle racing's biggest fatality concern right now is definitely not rain. It's running in the pack and having other bikes hit you when you fall. Um, as, as Simon alluded to, the Michelin wets, I mean, yeah, the visibility issue is there, but when Moto2 riders show up to MotoGP and they try the Michelin wets for the first time, they go, this is incredible. I, I love these so much. They have so much grip, which helps them stay on. Um, we've not seen, I think we've not seen huge injuries as of late in the wet. I mean, the one that my brain always goes to is Tito Rabat at Silverstone in whatever year when the whole thing shouldn't have happened. Yeah. And, and that was, we can lay the blame for that on the Ashford and company. Yes, exactly. Mm. So it's but, just. But, but likewise, Val, there's no skill in falling off. Once you fall off, you're in the hands of the gods. Yeah, yeah but it, there's. I mean frequency as much like more than the like the falls in the wet are severe. The bike chucks you off into space. Yeah, that's that's a problem. That's part of a safety concern. But I don't think it's I I, I don't think it's been like terrible or anything. And I don't. There's never been a moment in MotoGP where I was like, why aren't you running? The track is dry enough. Like the tracks I've seen, I've I've been like, yeah, okay, hang on there. Maybe rethink again, as Simon says. Maybe think about the the calendar. But but in terms of what they actually do and how the wet races work out and all that, I'm I think we're good. I think we're in a good place. Yeah, but it can rain in June. It can rain in July. Yeah, I've been at Mugello in June, and it's been steroids. We were at Silverstone at the end of the August when we had that wet year, and yet an August bank holiday in the UK can be boiling hot. It can rain at any day. If it rains too much, you don't race. That's fine. That's just an answer that we have to accept as a as the viewing public, I think. Yeah, the the I think the, the most dangerous rain situation I can think of since that Silverstone one um, was uh, Portimao this year with the Moto2 race where they hit a shower of rain on a section of the track and like the top 10 went down. Um, and, and arguably, while there were obviously extenuating circumstances in both of those, uh, part of the problem was also, I think a lack of re- direction from race control. Um, like especially the Silverstone one with her bat, that should have been stopped before it got to the stage it got to. Um, which maybe potentially brings us back to the safety car thing and, and being a bit more, why we need to be a bit more flexible with, you know, with, with not adhering to a rigid race schedule and being afraid to stop or slow or whatever it is, uh, a, a race. We'll start early. So we, we don't have like rain messages on the dash, do we? No. So that's that feels like a fairly easy fix to yeah. me. Yeah. Rain flags turn whatever. Yeah. It's not like a full fix, but it's it's a good start. Otherwise just then just hoping and praying that the rider notices a rain flag that comes out in time moments before he hits a wet patch and goes into space. But it's again that's not that's a, that's a different problem. Yeah. I think that's it's a problem but it's it's a different one and it doesn't speak to the overall danger of of wet races, which again I think MotoGP is in a good place. I yeah yeah. And just mm-hmm. one one more thing, Nick from Minnesota. 
the Vikings have been really good this year, haven't they? Like, I'm not much of a Kirk Cousins believer, but they've been yeah, much better than the Packers. Very impressed. Meanwhile, back on planet Earth, um, what is the forecast for this weekend in Valencia, not Minnesota? It, it looks pretty good. Um, I'm a, a little bit up the coast in the mountains at the minute, and it's absolutely glorious. Uh, I know some people who've been in Girona this week, which is a little bit further up the coast from Valencia, and it's been glorious. Um, and the forecast looks okay, so I think we're, we're going to get lucky. It is worth noting that we're like three weeks earlier than uh, we have been at some previous years at Valencia, and that we, than we will be next year. Uh, this this week's, uh, you know, I think race day is the 6th of June or 6th of November off the top of my head. I think next year's is the 26th. And, and we start in, and we start in Puerto Mao in March. So uh, speaking of calendars that don't make much sense for weather, uh, there's your examples. Mm, yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot to do. Anyway, uh, thank you, Nick, for your question. Do send your voice notes into podcasts at the-race.com. The email there, podcasts at the-race.com. And we will go through your voice messages and then we will have a great conversation starter thanks to you guys and then you will be in one of our podcasts well it's been a long time since we kicked the ball off in qatar um we will have to go back and listen to our season preview gentlemen and see who we picked and then we will bring that up in next week's podcast after the valencian grand prix when we find out who is the 2022 motor gp world champion val already looks smug no, I, I don't. I don't remember. It's not smug. It's... I, I seem to recall a Bastianini prediction that's... All right. Well, yeah, I've been, yeah. I've been, yeah, I've been tooting the Bastianini horn for, for a while there. So that's... At least I have that one. I bet the rest is absolute trash from my end, but at least I have this one. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it looks to be uh, looks to be a good one. So uh, wherever you will be watching from uh, wherever in the world, then make sure you tune into this weekend and make sure you download our podcast after this Valencian Grand Prix. In the meantime, keep in touch with the-race.com for all the stories from Simon and Val, together with all the Formula One stories as well. In the meantime... We look forward to the race this weekend. Speak to you after Valencia. Bye for now. The Athletic.